as the scriptures encourage us to do. So we're in Luke's gospel. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 4. This is right on the heels of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And these are the words we read. If you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear the inerrant word of the living God. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he was teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, he, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place at Capernaum. Now, do we all do also here in your hometown as well? And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning For your word, may it teach and instruct us. Help us now to have ears to hear and eyes to see the wonderful things that are found in your word. May your people be strengthened and built up and encouraged. May they be challenged and instructed. Lord, may we be strengthened and established and rooted as your people. 
May your word and your spirit accomplish that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Last year, uh, I was teaching uh, during our equipping hour, and I, I was teaching on the growing trend of progressive Christianity. Uh, you actually might have seen that in your own social media thread or feed. Uh, if you ever come across something like hashtag deconstructed or hashtag exvangelical, the Bible simply refers to that as apostasy, a falling away from the true faith. These individuals who refer to themselves as progressive Christians have rebranded themselves as deconstructed or ex-evangelicals. And in essence, what they've done is taken out any of those things that culture or they themselves personally have deemed offensive. Those things that are hard to swallow. Those things that are difficult that we read in the Gospels, that we read in the Bible. Those things that people might be easily offended by. Or, if you're too certain, you know, evangelicals, according to them, are too certain about doctrine, and about the gospel. And so they have created a Jesus who doesn't offend. He welcomes. He doesn't demand. He understands. He doesn't condemn. He cares. Because after all, he gets us. You may have seen some of those very commercials. And while some of these things have partial truths in them, they're certainly not the whole picture of who Jesus Christ is as revealed in the pages of Scripture. Just to further understand what I'm talking about, and I'm sure you've come across things similar to this, but here is a quote from an author who wrote a brief primer on progressive Christianity. And the author says this, quote, Progressive Christianity sees Jesus as the one who is both followed and attacked for his radical message of liberation and inclusion for all people, no matter their background, sex, race, or class. End quote. To these progressive Christians, Jesus was a social reformer. He was a social revolutionary who aligned himself with the oppressed and those that struggled and those who were poor, and he fought to liberate them from their oppressors. In their mind, this is what got him killed. He wasn't killed because of a sacrificial atoning death, but he was killed because he was preaching to the oppressor or against the oppressor. And he was preaching in favor of the oppressed. He stood up to the Roman Empire and was killed for it. Again, again, according to this side of progressive Christianity. And so far from being a savior in the spiritual sense, in the redeeming sense, he's a social liberator. 
He isn't a conquering king as much as he is a woke revolutionist. And my question and our question should be as we're going through the gospel according to Luke, is that the portrait that Luke paints for us or that the Bible paints for us? Is that what God Jesus killed? Is that what he did? You see, again, the difficulty is there are aspects of things that they are stating that are partially true or even secondarily true. Jesus was compassionate. Jesus, over and over again, we'll read of his compassion. Jesus was for the sinner. He dined with the sinner. We'll, we'll come to that. He's going to get nailed by the, the religious establishment about his dining and fellowshipping with sinners. And so certainly, Jesus was among sinners. But is that where it left? Is that the only thing he said to sinners? Was it simply a a welcomed acceptance as our culture defines? Or do we find Jesus doing other things like confronting sin, calling people to repentance and belief in him? Well, again, as as we go through the Gospel of Luke, I think we'll, we'll have a better portrait, a better understanding of who Jesus is after all. You want to make sure that your Jesus is the one of Scripture, not the one of your own desires and appetites and your own kind of picture that you paint or image that you have. No, Jesus in all of his fullness, that Jesus that comforts us and cares for us and welcomes us, and that Jesus who confronts us, who calls us to repentance, that that. That Jesus who redeems us, not simply from social oppressors, but from sin and death. The one who not only gives sight to the blind in terms of physical, in those miracles that we will read about. But far more, he gives spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. And so we want to see Jesus in all of his fullness. Both that Jesus that comforts us and jolts us. That's the Jesus we need to worship. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the Jesus revealed in the pages of Scripture. And so this morning with our text, what I'd like to do is Note three hallmarks of Jesus that help to answer that question. Who is Jesus? Because you, you, if you're paying attention to our culture and you listen to various preachers, various churches, you're left with a question. Will the, will the real Jesus please step forward? Who is Jesus? What is he like and what does he want? And the only place we can go for that is the scriptures. And so that's where we go this morning. So three hallmarks of Jesus' life that really help paint. Now, this isn't the whole picture. We're only in chapter 4. But it is part of the picture. Right? It's part of, of the fullness that will be painted for us of who Jesus is. 
what his life and his ministry are all about. And we see the first portrait in verses 14 and 15, and that is the priority of Jesus' ministry. The priority of Jesus' ministry. People have lots of portraits of Jesus. Miracle worker, social reformer, freedom fighter, liberator. While some of those might be true, Jesus, first and foremost, was a preacher. This is what we see him doing everywhere he goes. Look at verse 15. It tells us, right after the temptation, he was teaching, verse 15, in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Preaching and teaching were central to Jesus' ministry. You ever wonder to yourself, why is it that we sit for an hour and listen to some guy preach? The priority of the word, not the preacher, but the priority of the word, right? Why do we read the scriptures? Why do we sing the scriptures? Why do we preach the scriptures? Why do we talk about the scriptures? Because Jesus did. Because that was his priority. He was a preacher of God's word. He brought revelation. That was his ministry, his priority. You could say even more so than the miracles. You go through the Gospels and you will find, sure, there are lots of miracles. In fact, we know from John's Gospel, there are miracles that took place that we have no idea that they even happened. They're not recorded for us. All the things that Jesus did, but his priority was preaching more than miracles, definitely more than any kind of social justice or reform. In fact, you don't see a whole lot of that until much later with the church taking the teachings of Jesus. You do see cultural reform and change, but that's due to changed lives because Jesus was a preacher. He came to make disciples. That's what he did. That's what he gave himself to. In fact, after this experience in Nazareth, his hometown, look down at verse 31 of Luke 4. What do we read? And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Where is that? Well, that's back in Capernaum. His teaching was impressive. People were moved by it. They were intrigued by it. They they were left wanting to hear more. There was excitement. Nobody teaches like this guy. I know often we refer to Charles Spurgeon as the prince of preachers, but I think even Spurgeon would agree Jesus is the real prince of preachers. There never was one like him. Verse 32, we read, they were amazed at his teaching. That verb is the same verb that's used to describe the uh, astonishment that those who were around 12-year-old Jesus at the temple, they were astonished at the things he was saying and the questions he was rendering. Everywhere Jesus went, people were amazed, shocked, astonished, primarily at his teaching. Part of that is because while the scribes and other teachers might rattle off verses, oftentimes they were rattling off traditions, 
other rabbis and what other rabbis taught and thought. And Jesus speaks independently. That's why they say he teaches with what? Authority. He teaches with authority. We also know of Jesus, he knew the word. Remember Pastor Jack's message last week, right? He's in the midst of temptation. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. All the, the, the torments of Satan are coming down upon him. And what does he do as his food? He renders the scriptures. He quotes the scriptures. He declared the word. And that was captivating to the audiences. He was speaking as one who had authority. And his audiences realized it. He taught with power. He delivered with, with clarity and, and conviction. You realize that the Gospel of Luke even concludes with the resurrected Christ doing what on the Emmaus Road to those two disciples? Teaching. Teaching. He exegetes the Old Testament scriptures. This is how he ends his ministry before he ascends. Teaching. The two disciples who experience that, I've always wanted to be a fly on the wall to hear that message. I hope it's recorded in heaven and we get to watch it. I mean, I've heard people speak of Christ in the Old Testament, you know, speak of Jesus in the Old Testament, pointing out the various prophecies he fulfilled. But could you imagine Jesus teaching the Old Testament? I mean, even Old Testament scholars would want to sit in and hear Christ on that. And what is the response of these two disciples on the Emmaus Road? They say this, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Impressive, dynamic. The perfect teacher teaching the perfect word with precision and perfection. The people loved it. Look at verse 14 of our text. News about him spread all through the surrounding district. Now, certainly that could be because of the miracles he was doing, but it was certainly due to his teaching, which if you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll see, and they were amazed, and they were amazed, and they were amazed over and over and over again. He even gets the same kind of reception in his hometown, at least at the beginning. Before the hostility and the murderous rage, there was, there was a glorifying, right? And, and verse 22, look at verse 22. All who were speaking well of him were marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. I don't know if you recall the, the prophecy in Isaiah 11 concerning this king who would come and, and would be wise and there would be understanding and, and all, uh, all the kingdom would, would respond, even the animals and, and the other nations. But it specifically says in Isaiah 11, a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. Well, what did we read in Luke chapter 3 verse 22? That Jesus is a son of Jesse. And then Isaiah 11 says, And the branch from his roots will bear fruit. 
The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. What have we read over and over and over again in Luke? The spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's been anointed, right? It is evident that he's the promised one, that he's the fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah 11 and a host of other passages. And Jesus returned to Galilee, we read in verse 14, in the power of the Spirit. Notice that Jesus doesn't return from combat with Satan as a limping survivor, battered and mauled by the tempter. But what does he do? He returns in the power of the Spirit, teaching. Tempted yet still standing. That's the Christ that we must believe in. That's the Christ we must worship. Tried yet still fulfilling everything that the Father had sent him to accomplish. This is the promised one of Isaiah 11. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And Luke has said that from the beginning. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 35. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Chapter 4, 1, right before the temptation, he's full of the Spirit. He's being led around by the Spirit. So the Spirit is leading and directing and resting upon the Son as he begins his ministry. And now that is evident in his preaching. It's evident to all who hear him that there's something different. They're in awe. And isn't it interesting? Isaiah 11 says this. After it says the Spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him, it says the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear. I mean, it's safe to say there's never been a teacher on earth ever like this one. Ever. Again, Isaiah 11 is primarily dealing with his reign, but it's speaking of and evident in Luke's gospel. From 12 years old, it's evident his knowledge, his, his wisdom, his, his counsel, his understanding. And it's even evident in our text this morning. It's evident to those of his own hometown of Nazareth who knew him and refer to his words as words of grace. He speaks gracious words. He, he certainly possessed a rhetorical skill. There was a, pleasure, a pleasantry to his words. His words gave grace, at least to some, right? We haven't got to the last point. He was a preacher. He didn't make everybody happy, though. In verse 43 of Luke 4, we see Jesus say it plain and simple. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities, for I was sent for this very purpose. This is his task. This is his ministry. This is his priority to preach, to proclaim, to teach more than miracles, more than compassion, more than social reforming. Jesus was a preacher. He was a declarer of truth. And that's what he does over and over and over again from synagogue to synagogue. We see Jesus doing that. And by the way, there were a ton of synagogues. You look around the Sea of Galilee, look around the land. We have excavations all over Israel of these synagogues that were there. They probably, synagogues probably developed in, during the time of the Babylonian exile, right? Because they weren't able to gather. The temple wasn't there. They're in a foreign land. So they would gather together for reading and, and, and learning and reciting scriptures. And so Jesus does that. 
In verse 16, Luke very strategically and deliberately brings this event of Nazareth to the forefront. We know from verse 23, Jesus has already done some things in Capernaum. But Luke brings this particular incident to the center. Because Jesus doesn't walk into Nazareth as a stranger. He walks into Nazareth as a native. How would those closest to Jesus respond to his teaching? One thing, too, to note in verse 16. Notice Luke's emphasis on Christ and his faithfulness. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Remember, the the emphasis in Luke is the faithful piety of Jesus. He is the Jew of all Jews. He's the faithful Jew, pious in every way circumcised on the eighth day, parents who followed the law. He's at the temple at 12 years old. Why? For the feast of Passover. Luke's also the one who, interestingly enough, points out he submitted to his parents. Jesus was obedient to his parents. He overcomes the allurements of Satan with Scripture. And now it was his habit to be at the synagogue every Sabbath. He's a faithful Jew. Again, too, just in case you're wondering, well, maybe these particular Nazarenes didn't really know him. Well, Nazareth is a small town. It's about 400, maybe, 400 people. He grew up here. They watched him grow up. They, they saw him at play with his siblings, his, his interaction with his parents. They even saw his attentiveness at the synagogue, the very one They stood in at that moment. And now Joseph's son, as they will mention, has returned and he walks into this familiar assembly. And notice what happens in the verse 16. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the scroll and found the place. Again, he knows the word. He finds it. It's a scroll, not not a codex like this. This came around later. He finds that place in Isaiah 61, and maybe he is also highlighting Isaiah 58, and he reads this passage. And what he reads, and even more after what he says, will jolt his friends and his neighbors. For this teacher is not like other visiting rabbis. No, this one makes a startling claim. And this leads us to the second hallmark that helps us understand Jesus. Not just the priority of Jesus' ministry, but what we see in verses 16 to 22, the preeminence of Jesus' claim. In verses 18 and 19, you have verses from Isaiah 61, the first two verses, and maybe also Isaiah 58 being read. Maybe Jesus read both. Luke only, you know, is, is, you know, kind of putting them together. And what a passage it is. And this is a, a dynamic and exhilarating passage. It was a, a message of hope for Israel. It, it, was, it had to do with, again, a servant song. A servant who would come and deliver. In fact, in Isaiah 59, Israel is reminded 
that Yahweh is able to save them, even though they have done wickedly, even though God is judging them. But he tells them in Isaiah 59, Israel, Judah, your iniquity has separated you from God. Your hands are defiled. You are full of injustice and wickedness. And yet in Isaiah 59, the chapter ends with these words. And I've said this before, if you read the prophets, yeah, there's a lot of judgment, but there's always hope. Always. It's always woven into them. It says this, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. A redeemer will come to Zion. And and then you come to chapter 60 and 62 of Isaiah and there is this sustained theme throughout these three chapters, 60, 61, and 62, of this future and glorious restoration of Israel. And right in the middle of 60 to 62 is 61 verses 1 through 3. And all of a sudden, someone is speaking in the first person. It's the very thing that's quoted in Luke's gospel here that Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me. This this is the same first-person lingo that we've heard before if you've ever read the book of Isaiah. We we read a a similar thing in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 4, and Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. We don't have time to look there. Just trust me. You can check my work later. Go back and look. Write those down. 49, 1 through 4, Isaiah 40, 4 through 9. You have the servant of Yahweh speaking first person. Same idea. And if you know Isaiah, you know there are are these servant songs about what the servant of Yahweh will do. We're most familiar with Isaiah 52 and 3, right? About the suffering that this servant will endure. But it's not all suffering. In fact, if you read Isaiah 52, you know this guy, even in suffering, he accomplishes everything he set out to accomplish. He he fulfills, he does it all. And that the Father, Yahweh, is satisfied with his work. So we have these servant songs throughout Isaiah, and Isaiah 61 is one of them. In fact, the servant of the Lord is actually speaking. The servant refers to God as Yahweh, as Lord God, just as a servant did in Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 9. He he references the fact that the the Spirit is upon him, just as he does in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and Isaiah 59, verse 21. It's also said of this servant that he will proclaim Yahweh's word. And what do we see him doing as we have, as we've already noted when Jesus comes on scene right he's preaching and, and who is Jesus announcing this good news to in this servant song what does it include well we see it's for the poor it's for the captive he, he's preaching to the blind and the oppressed In other words, those who understand need 
They understand need in, in the greatest of way. And isn't it interesting that the servant of the Lord comes on scene and he's not proclaiming a message of try harder, do more. No, what does he do? He comes preaching the good news. The good news of the gospel. He preaches about himself. What God in his grace is doing, will do in the person of Christ. This is good news. The servant of the Lord says in Isaiah 61. Good news for the poor. It means release to those who are captive and, and enslaved. It means sight for those who are blind and freedom, liberation for those who are oppressed. This servant of the Lord in Isaiah 61 is, is, is the one who is going to usher in a, a new age of restoration, a new age of deliverance and salvation. And Jesus basically comes on scene and says, and I'm that guy. I'm, I'm the promised one. I, I am the servant of the Lord. You can kind of see why they're a little shocked. No preacher had ever come in and done that. And can I just give a little bit of an interpretive caution here? You know, we read, uh, and political parties, I will say, would utilize these kinds of things, you know, the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. You know, you'll, you'll hear things like, see, Jesus came for the poor. He came for the immigrant. He came for the refugee. He came for the prisoner. And, and while there is truth to that, it, it is true, we wouldn't say that Jesus' message and benefits, though, that he offered are given carte blanche to the poor or to the blind or to the oppressed. The good news is announced to them. They're the ones in the greatest need. They understand need in the greatest way. But will we say, you know, these things are, are true simply because you're poor or simply because you're oppressed? It isn't automatic because they're poor or captive or oppressed. And, and that's the problem with a strictly material and political interpretation of those verses. How many poor during Jesus' ministry became rich? Anyone? Well, ask the rich young ruler. He became poor if he was going to be obedient, right? How many of the millions of slaves, a third of the Roman Empire was slaves? How many of them were released or liberated during Jesus' ministry? Things would change over time. Culture would change. Ideas would change. But how many of them immediately during his three and a half years of ministry were? Certainly there were many who were given physical sight. We have accounts of those. But clearly there were far more who were spiritually blind than physically blind. Now, please do not get me wrong, and we'll see this even in Luke's gospel. The church, his disciples are called to minister to the poor, to the captive, to the oppressed, to the needy. 
But this is not simply a message of social justice. This is a message about spiritual transformation. This isn't a message about gaining a higher standard of living. This wasn't a political revolution or even a medical one. This is good news for the spiritually bankrupt. Those imprisoned by their own sin, blinded to the truth. And Jesus comes proclaiming and providing the favorable year of the Lord. You could say the jubilee of all jubilees. Now, are there physical and and socioeconomic elements to this? Yes. I think this is where your eschatology comes into play a little bit. Like, when will these be? Right? Will they be in heaven Are they here now? In what way? Part of the kingdom on earth, which certainly seems to be something that's preached. There's tastes of it. We we experience some of it, but it's, it's not in the sense that we see in those passages, not in the truest sense when Jesus is here. And, and I say these things because, you know, pol- politicians will use this and say, yeah, we need, to, we need to do this. We need to focus on this. And, and the way you're going to do that is, you know, let's tax the rich. Let's take from, you know, whoever it might be. But listen, and they'll say, hey, shouldn't we all want to make the same kind of things? And you see the left using this. They like to use, you know, kind of Marxist kind of thinking. Hey, oppressed and oppressor. We like that. I think Karl Marx talked about that. And, and so they look at it in a governmental sense. Listen, listen, please. When Jesus is the king, physically, is when I would listen to a politician telling me about social programming. But until then, I wouldn't, right? When Jesus is here and he's saying, we're setting the captives free, we're helping the poor, yes. And he does tell his church, why? Because the kingdom, there, there's a taste of that in the church and on earth. Government doesn't bring that, I would just remind you, Jesus brings that. It's Jesus' kingdom who brings that. Now, should we be in favor of that? Yes. Do we want to see poor taken care of? Do we want to see? Yes, I get all of that. But be very careful how you interpret Luke, because Luke is for the little guy. But it's not just because he's little. It's because he understands need. He understands his status where the religious elite do not, where the prideful do not. And so I would just caution you to be very careful. Like, Jesus is the hero, right? Obey Jesus, yes. But caution when politicians use these verses to try to come up with some kind of programming. Listen, it will work with Jesus. It doesn't work with Democrats or Republicans. And they've proven that, right? So again, when Jesus is reigning, yes, Right When Jesus is reigning, absolutely. Uh, because we know he's one who rules with equity. He's the only one. And this, by the way, don't walk out of it. He preaches, I'm not preaching politics. That's on both sides of the aisle and in the middle. It's all of them, right? Just be cautious how you throw around 
Jesus' words here. That's all I'm saying. All right? All right. That's the end of that one. All right. So verse 20. Jesus says this because, again, I think his intention here and now, it's definitely more spiritual. I think there are future aspects. Well, there are future aspects in which this will be fulfilled in its completion. But what does he do? He closes up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. He sits down, and you love this phrase right after that. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Man, I'd like to see that. I'd love to see what they were doing. Um, just gazing at him. And he gives a nine-word sermon. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. By the way, that's a theme. That is a theme through Luke. Don't miss it. God is on the move. He's fulfilling all of these things. His promises are coming to pass. Open your eyes, Theophilus. Open your eyes, church. He's worked, he's moving, he's directing, he's bringing these things to completion. So Jesus comes on scene, reads Isaiah 61, sits down and says, I'm him. I'm the servant of the Lord. I'm the bearer of this new age of salvation. Listen, no doubt other teachers had read and probably even expounded on Isaiah 61 about the future fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. But Jesus says, you are witnessing its fulfillment before your very eyes. Or he says, your ears. Right? You've heard the word of the Lord. Do you recall what the angels declared at Jesus' birth? Luke 2.11 For today... In the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What does Jesus say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears, in your hearing. Point, salvation has come. Yahweh's promised servant is here, and he comes bearing good news. What until now had only been potential, what had been a promise, what had been hope, long-awaited, is at that moment present reality. It's a shocking claim. Israel's long-anticipated Messiah is there, in that synagogue, in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's a man from their very own village. He's saying to this hometown audience, the time that all people faithful to God have been waiting for is now here, And it's found in me. That's quite a claim for a local carpenter to make. But it's it's vintage Jesus. It is vintage Jesus. Who do you say that I am? That's the question all of us have to answer. And you can even see their struggle. Right? Look at verse 22. They are speaking well of him, marveling at his words. But at the same time, what are they saying? And this is the first time Joseph's name comes up other than the genealogy, right? Is this not Joseph's son? I mean, really? Could that be? Jesus' claim elicits quite the response. On the one hand, there's suspense and expectation. On the other hand, there's skepticism. And even a need for further proof. After all, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So there's this apprehension and even a little bit of sarcasm and doubt. How could he be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61? 
And what Jesus says next will truly enrage them. In essence, he is exposing their hearts. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place at Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. In other words, prove it. You just said you're the Messiah. You are the servant of the Lord. Prove it. But interestingly enough, in this particular situation, it was Jesus, not the villagers, who provoked this crisis. They admired Jesus. It was tempered with some skepticism. That seems to be a common human attitude, the need to feel like, hey, we need better proof. Show me this and I'll believe. Do this for me and I'll believe. If God only did this or that, then I would believe. That, that's a human response, right? I've heard it often. But Jesus doesn't provide a sign. He just proclaims the word. And he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. hometown. Prophets generally had rough jobs, right? Who wants to be that guy, Right? You come on scene and it's not a good message. You're sinning. God is going to judge you. That's what the prophets did in the Old Testament over and over and over. Who wants to be that guy? And so here Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one who's to redeem and deliver, and he comes not offering a sign or a miracle. He comes diagnosing their heart, what is ultimately in their heart. And that leads us then to the final hallmark that helps us to answer the question, who is this Jesus? You see the priority of Jesus' ministry, which is preaching and teaching. You see the preeminence of Jesus' claim, and that is he's the Messiah, he's the promised one, he's the servant of the Lord. But notice finally the polarizing nature of Jesus' message. The polarizing nature of Jesus' message. And I think this is perhaps where I gasp the most when I think of progressive Christianity and this thing like, you know, he, he, he was always so compassionate. He was always, it's like, have you not read the stuff he said to people? My Jesus wasn't confrontational. Well, your Jesus is different than this Jesus. Right? You, you have this image, well, my Jesus, you know, listen. Jesus went for the jugular a lot. He went for the jugular often. He often exposed the inner recesses of, of a person's heart. And that's what he's doing here. You're looking for a sign, I'm giving you none. You need to be more concerned about your own heart and your spiritual elitism than you do a miracle I'm about to do. And you might think, well, that's just his hometown. No. Listen, what did he say to the rich young ruler? He hit him where it hurt, baby. The rich young ruler had a pocketbook full of money and spiritual pride so big. And what does Jesus say to him? Go sell everything you have. And you guys who are barely making it, you're thinking i got to give all that I have to give to He said that to the rich young ruler. Why? Because he was going for the jugular. He was exposing the rich young ruler's heart. 
Do you remember what he said to the Samaritan woman who was looking for a drink from the well? He exposes her as well. He says, listen, honey, you need more than physical water. You need living water that will satisfy forever. And did he just do that because after all, she's a Samaritan? Yes, I mean, it's significant. He talks to a woman and she's Samaritan. That is significant. We should notice that. But do you know what he says to her? He asks about her husband. And then he says, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. What does he do? He exposes her. Now, notice the difference in responses, right? The rich young ruler goes away sad because he was a man of great wealth, right? These guys, they get ticked. They want to throw him off the cliff, right? They're enraged by the stuff that he says. Do you know what she did? She goes back and says, this is the savior of the world. This is the savior of the world. So this caricature of Jesus where he's just, he just carte blanche accepts people with no need of repentance or, 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 or no exposing of their sin. It's foreign. You've created a different Jesus. You have in your mind, Jesus washes everyone's feet. Doesn't matter what they do or what their attitude is. Listen, don't use that. Again, sure. He is a great sympathizer, one who has compassion, and he comes alongside to minister. But if you don't think he has a message of repentance, of of exposing sin, you've not read enough of Jesus. Read some more. It's a false picture. It's a false picture. That's not the Christ of the Bible. Jesus told the Pharisees, this is the, the, the height of pride and arrogance, of, of na- you know, talk about nationalism, right? And, and Jesus says, you guys are a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look good. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're dead. You know, you, you read that epic episode in John 9 of the, of the blind man and the Pharisees, man, they are up in arms and in essence you're left saying, well, who's really blind here? The blind guy, I mean, he was physically blind but he sees clearly. The Pharisees, they see physically but man, they do not see spiritually. Who's really blind? Jesus often is exposing their sin, exposing their hearts. And people don't like that stuff. That's why it's polarizing. It's why there's division. My daughter was in a a cheer competition this week. So we were in Anaheim and there was several conventions going on at the Anaheim Convention Center. And I saw this guy who's holding up this sign. Now, again, I've talked about methods, right? Methods of evangelism. But it was like this giant sign, and it had um, you know, some derogatory statements about Catholics in particular. I said to my wife, ah, just take that thing down. Everything else he's saying is great. Uh, but I, I just don't know why 
just preach the gospel, right? But man, he had people screaming at him in his face. This guy was like right up in his business. And uh, on the one hand, hey, I don't know the whole story. He could have been seriously obnoxious. But there's another part, and that is people don't like their lives being exposed, right? They don't, they don't like that. And, and that's what's polarizing about Jesus. That, that's what's polarizing about his nature. This kind of idea of just, you know, acceptance with no message is just false. He enrages these neighbors so badly that they're willing to kill him. I mean, think about that for a minute. How do you go from marveling at his gracious words to wanting to chuck the guy down the cliff? And they would have done it if Jesus wasn't a ninja, right? Or whatever he did. I don't know what happened. There's not a, it doesn't say there was a miracle. Maybe he just knew how to duck and roll or I don't know, right? But they would have had their way. I think you see this most clearly in John, right? Where they pick up stones and like he disappears, right? And the point of that is, listen, you guys aren't going to kill Jesus prematurely. He's come for the cross. He's going to make it to the cross. That's why he's here, right? So they weren't going to be able to do this. But what did he say that made these guys so mad? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He turned on the light and exposed their hearts. And just like those critters, when you pull back a rock, start scampering, these are bigger critters who can kill you, right? And that's what you have going on. They're offended by the words of Christ. Not, not just his claim, mind you, his message. What does he say? Well, he mentions two Old Testament events. One from the prophetic ministry of Elijah and the other one from the prophetic ministry of Elisha. We see it in verses 25 and following. And here's what I want you to notice. This little phrase here, verse 25. There were many widows in Israel in, Israel in the days of Elijah, yet, there's the operative word, yet Elijah was sent by God to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And then in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So here you have a widow and you have Naaman, both of them Gentiles. And by the way, they are uh, from regions that are historically hostile to and even loathed Israel. And, and, and it's, here's the thing. There were many widows in Israel. God blesses a foreigner. Their nationalism, their elitism had, had gotten so big. That's a caution for us, friends. We got to be careful. America's great. Don't get me wrong. But you got to have a bigger vision. Luke's doing that. He's hey, it's bigger than this. It's bigger than this. It's bigger than just us, right? And that, he doesn't like that. He's exposing it. He says, listen, there were, there were very needy Israelites who were starving and suffering and afflicted with leprosy. 
and they were passed over in favor of these unwashed Gentiles, right? Yahweh passed by his own people for these guys. And, and, and the idea is, look, Israel had gotten to a place where their privilege was not producing humility and compassion, but pride and scorn. And Jesus is exposing their presumption. He's explo- exposing their exclusivity and pride as they deem themselves as the only ones needy. And they viewed themselves as the only ones privileged. He's, he's really echoing what John the Baptist said because they were presuming God's favor when he says, you guys are saying we have Abraham as our father. And John's basically saying, mm, he has no grandchildren, right? He has no grandchildren. Don't bank on that just because your ethnicity. And notice the language Jesus uses there, Elijah was sent. Naaman the Syrian was clean. These are divine passives, which means this is the will of the Lord. This is what God is doing. They illustrate the Isaiah text perfectly that Jesus just read in the synagogue. They're the poor who receive good news. They're the captives who have been released. They're the blind whose sight is restored. They're the beneficiaries of the favorable year of the Lord. I mean, in essence, Jesus is saying the Jews are not the exclusive claim holders on the needy and the oppressed. This was a a mercy extended to all. And remember, one of the things I've tried to point out as you're kind of thinking through this is, that is that's not new. That's always been the way it was intended. You read these servant songs. You, you read Isaiah 42. You read Daniel 7. You read Psalm 2. This has always been the plan. Nationalism and pride had crept into their hearts. Their mission was lost. And we see from the totality of Scripture, that it's always been God's plan that every tribe, every tongue, every nation was always the plan of the Lord. This was not an afterthought. And Jesus provides examples in the widow and in Naaman. Both of these Gentiles, even as, by the way, Abraham was a Gentile before he became a Jew, right? He was. So Jesus is exposing their pride. And what often happens when our pride is brought out into the open is what we see in verses 28 and 29. From marveling to murderous rage in matter of moments. Think of this for a minute. Words expressed in a message and they offend. Listen, we, we have to embrace, and Jesus was crystal clear on this, we have to embrace the fact that the message of the gospel humbles and pride people don't, prideful people don't like humility. None of us do, really, do we? If we're honest. The gospel humbles, and we don't like it. We don't like to see ourselves like that. We don't like to identify that we're the poor, that we're the captives, That we're the blind that he's talking about. That we're in need. Even though we don't necessarily think we're in need. And by the way, when you look at verses 28 and 29, your mind 
And if you aren't thinking this, I'm going to teach you to do it. Your mind should be going to something that Simeon said as he was holding eight-day-old Jesus in his arms. Do you remember what he said? Do you remember his words? He said this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And then, these are the words you should be thinking of too. He turns to Mary and he says, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be what? Opposed. A sign to be opposed. That is exactly what's happening here. And this will be the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. Sure, there will be people who will uh, believe. There will people, be people who are saved. But he will be opposed. We should be saddened by this episode, but not shocked. They are responding as a microcosm of the chronic hardness of heart that Israel had throughout their days and the way they treated prophets. This is why Jesus says, verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown, right? It's just the way it is. Don't like that message. We reject that message. Be very cautious of a message everyone's like, yeah, I like that, right? So you see the response of like a Super Bowl commercial or or something. It's like, mm, if everyone likes it, it can't be right, right? I mean, the, the, it's not offending, and Jesus did that. There was a polarizing nature to his message. Jesus isn't rejected by outsiders, but by those closest, right? And friends, that's a warning to us in the church. It really is. I mean, that's one of the things that we see. Like The people that are coming out as ex-evangelicals or deconstructed are people who were in these very pews. I don't know about these very ones, but you know what I'm saying, right? They're in the pew. They're in the seat. Those closest to Jesus rejected Jesus. Think of that for a minute. He's not rejected by Sodom and Gomorrah. He's rejected by Nazareth. People who knew him. He's betrayed not by the devil, but by one of the twelve. Judas. He's crucified not in pagan Rome, but in the heart of Israel. And if you ever want, I mean, there's a great example, right? He, he wasn't a revolutionary. The people who were in the forefront of killing Jesus were Jews. It was religious Rome wanted to wash their hands of this thing. They just did it because they didn't want to deal with the hard-heartedness of the Jews. And so you see, listen, you look at the history of Israel and you realize that the ultimate problem isn't Baal worship, foreign gods, other nations. It's their own hearts. Jesus said, or uh, the Lord said it in Hosea 11, my own people who are bent on turning from me. Right? That's the problem. That's why we see Jesus comes to his own, and what do they do? They reject him. They didn't receive him. I would just ask, as you think, is this the picture of Christ that you have? 
Have you, have you included these parts as you envision him, as you even share him with others? Is this the portrait of Christ that we see in Scripture, or have we made one in our own liking? The Gospel of Luke, if you're wanting for a full picture of Christ, it's a great one to see. and We'll see it as we continue throughout the time. Jesus' ministry was that of preaching, that he was the promised Messiah, and he comes exposing sin, and that doesn't always get the most positive responses. So, church, be ready for that. Right? Be ready for that as well. The gospel is life to some as it is to us and is death to others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for the precision it gives as we try to understand who our Savior is. Lord, may our portrait and vision of Christ be that which has been revealed from Scripture and not one we've created in our own minds, one that's been created by our own culture, but one that we see repeated throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. May that be the Christ that we serve, the Christ we proclaim, and the Christ that we worship. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.